0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Parents, you can dismiss your children for Children's Church now if you would like to do that. Uh, Just send the kids to the center doors there in the back of the sanctuary. And the rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians not first, but 2 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. we got paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and this passage will be found on page 563, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, many, many centuries ago, back in the, the second century, Uh, there was a very kind of strange group that was uh, rising up in the Roman Empire at the time, and there were a a number of um, accusations, charges that were being brought against this group. They were accused of being drunkards. They were accused of being uh, subversive to state power. They were accused of having very strange relationships within their own families kind of incestuous relationships between brothers and sisters. Uh, they were accused of being atheists. They were accused of being cannibals. Do you know what group this was? Uh, these people were called Christians. The very early Christians in the second century were accused, charges were brought against them for all of these things by those living in the Roman Empire. Of course, all of these accusations were false. Uh, but as they were coming forward toward Christians, there were a certain number of people in the church who decided that a defense needed to be offered against all of these accusations. And um, a number of men rose up. I've got some pictures here of them, Justin Martyr, Origen, Tertullian, Um, who took pen in hand or wrote responses to these accusations and have come down through history to be known to us as the very first apologists, the very first Christian apologists. And so this this is an important part of being a Christian, kind of a discipline within Christian theology, apologetics, And you hear that word, and and it strikes you as somewhat familiar because of the word apology. Um, Really, the the idea between apologetics is not apologizing. It's not saying we're sorry for anything. Uh, It comes from the Greek word apologia, which just simply means to make a defense. And so, we can define apologetics like this. It's an activity of the Christian mind which attempts to show that the gospel message is true in what it affirms. It's an activity of the Christian mind where we attempt to show that the gospel message is true in what it affirms. Now, what we're doing here at New Life is going through a sermon series on our core values. So, if you've been here for the last several weeks, you know that we've been working our way through five core values that we hold here at the church, adoration, belonging, compassion, discipleship, and for the last few Sundays, we've been kind of camping out here a little bit in the last core value, which is E, evangelism. So you might recall we talked about personal evangelism, just one-on-one sharing our faith with others, sharing the gospel with others. <clears throat> last Sunday was Missions Sunday, uh, and so we talked about foreign missions. That's another form of evangelism. Today we're considering this task of apologetics, and I'm putting this under the uh, category of evangelism. This is part of what it is to share the gospel with others, that is, to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Now, today, um, it's not often, probably never, that Christians are called cannibals. Uh, And if you're wondering, why in the world would anybody think that Christians were cannibals? Well, the Lord's Supper, we talk about feeding on the body and blood of Christ And so, people in the Roman Empire heard that and they drew this conclusion that these people are practicing cannibalism, of course, a gross misunderstanding uh, to which a response needed to be given. We're not called cannibals today, but um, we have been called other names. Uh, There are those who would say we're hypocrites, that we're self-righteous, that we're sexist, that we're racist, that we're irrational, that we believe in a fairy tale. Are you ready to defend your faith against these kinds of accusations? That's what apologetics is, and that's what we need to consider here this morning. And so we have this text in 2 Corinthians 10 that's going to lead us into a consideration of this task of apologetics. So if you're able to stand, please do so, and let me read uh, just the first five verses of this text. This is the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing this letter to The church in Corinth, uh, he's written one before, that's 1 Corinthians. Now this is the the second one. He may have written more, but these are the two that are in the canon of Scripture for us, 2 Corinthians 10. So here's what Paul says. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy Arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, so. Uh, perhaps some of you are uh, you know, really into apologetics and you've done a lot of reading and, and thinking in, in this area. For some of you, this might be the, the first time that you've even heard the, the word uh, apologetics. And so, uh, I'm just going to lay out some key points about this, this task. And the first thing that we want to consider is this, based on this text, is that apologetics require argument. <laughs> okay? Now, that might not sit so well with you. Maybe that word rubs you the wrong way a little bit, argument, particularly in the uh, culture that we live in now where so much arguing is going on, politically speaking, anyway. Uh, the Scripture does warn us against being argumentative. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging us to be argumentative. In fact, Proverbs says this, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Um, we're not to be looking for an argument. When you see an argument kind of developing, it's kind of good in most cases to kind of pull back. So th- that's not what I mean. I don't mean being quarrelsome. By, by argument, what I mean is this. I mean, another way to define argument is just to say that it's a process of reasoning. A- an argument is uh, just um, an attempt to persuade somebody of something. Whenever you want to convince somebody of something, you have to make an argument, And that's what I'm saying here. Apologetics requires arguments. And so you can see in the text very clearly that this is what Paul's talking about, right? End of verse 4, he's talking about destroying these strongholds, these particular viewpoints, these spiritual matters that are raised up against the gospel. He says, we destroy these arguments. And every lofty opinion, that word lofty kind of means arrogant, every arrogant opinion that is raised up against the knowledge of God, what Paul is saying here is that I want to attack those arguments through his own arguments to refute or to show those arguments to be false. So this is is Paul's intention here in in this passage. So let let me give you a little background. Here's what's going on. Here's why Paul is saying this. Paul is an apostle. Now, an apostle is somebody who has been appointed, kind of set aside by Jesus for the specific purpose of carrying the gospel into the world. So an apostle is a messenger, so to speak. There are only a handful of apostles, and Paul was one of them. He was chosen for this purpose that he would teach the gospel, preserve the gospel, preach the gospel. But there was a group of people in this Corinthian church who resisted that idea. They did not like Paul's claim to be an apostle because they wanted to have the same authority that he had, and so they were trying to deny his authority. And so there was this conflict here between Paul and this group in Corinthian in, in Corinth. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm, I'm prepared to bring a response to these arguments that are brought against my claim to be an apostle. Now, that that might sound like it's kind of a personal vendetta for Paul, and that's not it. I don't think Paul here is defending himself. It's not like Paul is on some ego trip here, and he wants to have authority and power. That's not it. It's that Paul knows that he has been set aside for this very specific purpose, for preserving the purity of the gospel, and if there were all of these different people rising up claiming to be apostles, you'd have a completely watered-down, corrupted, and distorted gospel. And so what Paul really wants to defend here is not himself, but the gospel, because he has been set aside for that very purpose. So, Paul is ready to, to engage in arguments to destroy strongholds. Now, this challenges a very common idea that some people have about Christianity, because there are many who think that Christianity is just, it's all about the heart. It's all about the emotions. It's all about how we feel about God. It's all about this sense that Jesus is with me, and that if we kind of get into intellectual things and arguments, that somehow that's going to interfere with the spirituality of my faith. That's a kind of a common thought among some. And you know, there, there is some truth to that, quite frankly, and certainly we don't want to deny that Christianity is a religion of the heart, of the emotions. It is. I mean, we should have a heart for the Lord. That's absolutely true. But Christianity is also a religion of the mind, friends. This, what we believe in, it's an intellectual religion. It is. It's not only that, but it's not less than that. It's a philosophy of life. And so, if we look at Scriptures, we'll see things like this. Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's not just about the heart. It's about the heart and the mind. Paul, later in Romans, says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way you think. If you look back to our text, look at verse 5 here. Paul talks about destroying these arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive, taking your thinking captive to Jesus. There is an intellectual task involved in defending the faith and in being a Christian. And so these early apologists, they they were prepared. They thought very carefully uh, about how they were going to defend the faith. So, for instance... um, there was this charge against the early Christians that they were atheists. Now, that, that might sound, how could that be also? You don't, how could people accuse Christians of being atheists? Well, the reason was because back in the second century, people would worship idols that were made of stone and gold and, and, and precious metals, and they would build this kind of, uh, you know, this, this idol that they could touch and feel and bow down to it. But the Christians came and said, no, we don't, we don't worship physical items. We don't worship anything in the creation. We worship the Creator, and we worship a God who is invisible, actually. But the people in the Roman Empire didn't understand that. They, they said, you Christians, you worship an invisible God. To them, that was the same as worshiping no God, and so you're atheists. But these early apologists, they thought about how to, to reply to this, and they said in their writings, they said, well, this is very interesting um, that you have these gods that you've built with uh, stone and gold, and you've kind of set them up in your homes or in certain places, um, and, and that, um, that you have to be concerned that actually somebody might come and steal those, those idols of yours. And so you've got to set up people to protect your idols from being stolen. Now how is a God that needs to be protected from being stolen? How is he going to protect you? That was their argument. They said, see, we worship a God who is in control of all things and who can protect us. We trust Him to protect us, but your little idle pole is not going to protect you because, in fact, it needs to be protected itself. So there was another accusation, this idea that uh, the Christians were subversive, that they were against the state. Now, the reason why that accusation was brought forth is because Christians were known to worship a king. And that king's name was not Caesar Caesar. That king's name was Jesus. And so when people heard about these Christians worshiping a different king, they thought, oh, so that means you're against the state. You want to bring down the emperor. You're subversives. You're dangerous. You're insurrectionists. You're revolutionaries. And the apologists had a response to that. And they said, and they just had to be willing to take the hit for this. And some of them did. And they just said, you know what? It's true. We will not worship your emperor, we're not going to do it. But we will serve him. We will be good citizens, and you know what? The best way that we can serve your emperor is to pray for him, to pray for the one true God to bless that emperor to rule over us in a righteous and just way. We'll pray for your emperor. That's our way of serving him, and that's what makes us good citizens, but the citizens of the Roman Empire, some of them didn't buy that argument. Some the early Christians, of course, paid with their lives. But so you can see, this task of apologetics was, was going on in the early centuries. It's been going on throughout all of history, and it's going on today. There's always going to be questions, accusations, charges that we need to answer. People are going to say, you think Jesus is the only way to heaven? That is so intolerant. People are going to hear us say that marriage is between a man and a woman, and they're going to say that is so hateful. And people are going to hear us say that we believe in one God who has created all things, and people are going to say that is so anti-science. So how do you respond to this? Do you feel like you're ready in the workplace, in your family, with your friends to respond? Now, I know that there are concerns that might be raising in your mind here about this whole task of apologetics, because for some, again, it just seems so intellectual, uh, and I, I know that for many of us, we just think, I, I don't know how to answer all these questions. I, I don't. I don't even know where to begin. And I'm just not an educated person. I'm just not that heady. And so, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to that. <clears throat> um, you know, not everybody is designed in the same way. Not everybody has the same uh, intellectual capacity as everybody else. So I, I just want to respond to that with this, that the, the whole task of apologetics is indeed primarily Spiritual. And you can see Paul talk about this. If we go back to the text, if you look at the end of verse 3, as he's talking about these arguments, he says, We're not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, the real war here, what Paul is saying, the real war here is not a, a humanly speaking thing that is dependent entirely on me. It doesn't depend on my intelligence and my charisma and my charm and all of my creative arguments. It's not, in essence, a battle with the flesh. Instead, what does he say? Uh, that We're talking about um, uh, the weapons of divine power in verse 4 that destroy strongholds. He, he's, he's referring to spiritual weapons. He's referring to the power of the Word of God. He's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the power of the gospel. Paul understands that those are the weapons, ultimately, that he has to rely upon. Right? Zechariah chapter 4 says, not by might or by power, but by my Holy Spirit. And Romans 1, Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says later, nobody says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so let's not minimize the, the spiritual component here. If anybody is going to be converted and convinced that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not your work. It's not my work. So, yeah, we can be too intellectual about it. That's possible. But, but the other part of that is I think we can be too spiritual about it in some respects. In other words, we can take everything that I just said about the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can conclude then, well, then I don't really have to do anything. I don't have to engage. I don't have to be ready because the Spirit's going to convert whoever he wants and it's his business, not mine. But I don't think we can draw that conclusion either because look at what Paul did. Like This kind of thing is repeated over and over again about Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, using his mind, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is the same guy who said that no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is the same guy who says that his confidence is in the gospel because only the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And yet he still went into the synagogue and reasoned and debated and brought forth his arguments and tried to persuade and convince people that Jesus is Lord. Now, it's also true, though, that you and I are not the Apostle Paul. We're not gifted like Paul, and there's not an apostle in this room. Uh, Brian and I are not apostles. We're pastors. We're elders. We're not apostles. There are no more apostles today. So Paul had a very specific role in a very specific time. And so I'm not suggesting that we all got to go find a synagogue and go in and start arguing with Jews. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) But what I'm saying is the same guy who was relying on the Spirit also used his intellectual abilities to reason to seek to persuade people to believe. But at the same time, we can look at other passages like these. 1 Peter 3 talks about always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason to the hope hope that is in you. That's not written to apostles. It's written to you and me. Jude 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend, to make a case, to make an argument for the faith. That's not written just to apostles, that's written to you and me. So there's a responsibility that that we have to make an argument for Jesus. And part of our responsibility here as leaders and elders of this church is to get all of you ready for that. And so that's part of what we seek to do with all of our discipleship ministries. Our equip groups are kind of getting you ready. Sunday morning worship, every Sunday as we look to the Scriptures, we're kind of trying to get you ready. And I want to let you know about an event that we have on our calendar coming up in the fall, um, our first apologetics conference, November 4 and 5. It's Friday night and Saturday. Uh, Dr. Paul Copan is going to be here. He's a pretty well-known apologist, author, theologian, uh, and uh, Dr. Jim Spiegel, who many of you know, used to be a member here at New Life, lives in Bloomington now, so Jim's going to be here speaking as well. Um, we've got a lot of details yet to work out, but we've got our dates, we've got our speakers. Um, so you can all put this in your calendar uh, right now and uh, be prepared to come November 4 and 5. So that's the first point. Apologetics require argument, But the second thing I want to show you is that apologetics also require a a particular attitude, a particular kind of attitude. There are are great benefits to apologetics. One of those is that it, it will make us bolder in evangelism. You know, if we're more confident that we can answer certain questions, we'll be more likely to enter into discussion. Uh, another benefit is that it can really strengthen your faith. I mean, there is this kind of unintended consequence. We study and we get ready to answer arguments that others have, and we find that the arguments and questions that we have are getting answered. And our own doubts are being kind of put aside a little bit. So it's you know whether you ever have an opportunity to get into a debate or not with somebody, this will be good for your faith. But there are pitfalls to the study of evangelism. And that is, as I've already kind of hinted at, we can get to the point where we rely too much on our intellect. As we become to know things, we we can get puffed up in our knowledge. We can get very prideful. We can get kind of arrogant about what we know. And we can begin to see others as the enemy We look at our atheist or agnostic friend or our Muslim friend or the Jehovah's Witness or Mormon who comes by. We see them as opponents. We see them as people to be defeated. We see them as in a competition, and we adopt this kind of super feisty, I'm going to destroy these people rather than destroying their arguments. Kind of mentality. I mean, maybe some of you have adopted that. Maybe you have been the recipients of that kind of attitude among some believers. Friends, it is possible to win an argument and lose the person. And that's not what we're interested in. People can feel often as they talk with Christians sometimes disrespected, belittled, not heard. And we don't want to defend the faith in that way. I tell this story, I've told it many times, but I just think it's really good for illustrating this. There's a friend of mine in seminary, his name is Mark, he's a pastor in New York now, and he talked about how when he was in seminary, you know, here's what happens often when guys go to seminary, they start getting answers and they start getting to be pretty proud and they want to let everybody know what they know. And so Mark was having this, this friendship, this kind of conversation with a guy, and these conversations were going on, and finally the guy sat Mark down and he said, you know, Mark, um, when I talk with you, really, all I want to do is play catch, but I feel like every time we talk, you're trying to hit a home run. And sometimes Christians can be that way. You know, we're just always trying to, to just send that ball out of the park. I mean, we're just trying to make, we're always trying to one-upmanship the person we're always trying to get the last word. We're always trying to defeat. And that is not the attitude we need to bring to apologetics. It's, it's a balance, isn't it? It's a delicate balance. I mean, we're, we're arguing, we're defending, and yet we're doing it with a certain attitude. And so let, let me show you how this comes out of the text. In Paul's situation, if you go back to verse 1, <clears throat> Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and then he says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. So, what, what Paul is doing there is he, is he is paraphrasing the critique that has been coming to him from the Corinthians. He's kind of quoting them in, in kind of a, a general way. In other words, what he's saying is, here's what you say. Corinthians. You say that I'm humble when I'm face to face with you, but I'm bold when I'm away. In other words, when, when I'm in, in, in person with you, and Paul had made a, at least a couple of visits to Corinth already, when I'm with you, I'm, I'm humble. But actually, that word humble, if you look at different versions, it's translated in different ways, it probably has more of the sense of, of being timid or weak or cowardly. And so what they're really saying is, yeah, Paul, you know, when you're with us, face-to-face, you're all mild and timid and and you're not bold at all, but boy, then you go to another city and write us a letter, and then in the letter it's all full of boldness and severity and you're all intense about things. And so that's their criticism against Paul. And what Paul is saying here is he's responding by by saying this in verse 2. He says, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So, here's another accusation against Paul that he's been walking according to the flesh. In this sense, uh, it, it means that, you know, Paul, you're just relying on all of your own abilities. You're, you're manipulative. You're underhanded. You're relying on human means, not spiritual means. That that was another accusation coming and what Paul is saying here is that the reason why I'm bold in my letters when I'm away is so I don't have to be bold when I come and see you in person. It's Paul's way of saying, look, I'm trying to get out the, the, the hard stuff in my letters so that you'll respond to these. And when I come and we're together, I don't have to bring that severity. I don't have to come in here with all guns blazing. In other words, what Paul is saying here is I'm not looking for a fight. I'm Really, I don't want to get into this back and forth duking it out. And so I'm strong in my letter, so I don't have to be strong in person. And if you go back to the very beginning, you'll see why Paul is saying this. It's because his example is Jesus. And he says, I come and I'm entreating you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I I want to come to you in meekness. I want to come to you with a particular attitude It's an attitude of gentleness, calmness. I'm not looking for a fight. I want to be like Jesus who, according to 1 Peter, when Jesus was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten. He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus Himself says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. So here's this balance. It's like being ready to defend our faith with clear, sound arguments, and yet doing it with an attitude of gentleness and meekness. And it's not easy to do. And when we engage in this, we're all going to fall on one side or the other. And that's why we just remind ourselves, thank God for the blood of Jesus who forgives us for all of our lack of gentleness and humility when we seek to defend the faith. So friends, when you're, when you're Answering questions, Lord, you've got to be kind. You've got to be fair. You've got to be patient. You've got to be calm. We, we don't raise our voice and yell at people. We, we don't resort to name calling. We don't point out physical or character flaws in a person and go after them in that way. We admit it when we're wrong. You're going to say things in this task of apologetics that you're going to find out probably weren't quite right. You need to go back and admit it. Sorry, I was wrong. We don't insist on the last word. Kind of at the essence of all of this, friends, is that probably what is more important than the actual arguments you make is the character and integrity you bring to the discussion. Do people see you as a a humble, godly person? So T.S. Eliot, great um, poet, maybe I don't know if you knew that he was a believer, but was, Greatest proof of Christianity is not how far a man can logically analyze his reason for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on his belief. That's the most powerful apologetic. Staking your life on what you believe to be true about the gospel. So there's an attitude that we have to bring, an attitude that Paul was bringing to Corinth here, gentleness and meekness, even as he was ready to destroy the strongholds against him. And then one last thing apologetics requires ambition. Ambition. By ambition, I mean a particular goal, that there's a goal that we're seeking. When we're engaged in apologetics, what we want to see is people bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. That's more important than winning the argument. It's more important, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's more important than getting somebody to be conservative in their politics. It's more important than getting people to embrace capitalism. It's more important than getting someone to vote for a particular candidate. We can be apologists for all those things too. And and I'm not saying that's inappropriate. I'm just saying our chief goal here, friends, as Christians, is getting people to see the lordship of Jesus. And you see that in verse 5 every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is what Paul wants to see, people with every thought captive to obey Christ. There's something here to notice. When you become a Christian, it's true, you come to believe in Jesus as your Savior. That's absolutely true. Jesus has come to lay down His life for sinners. He has come to take your place. He has come to take the condemnation that you deserve He has come to redeem you, to save you, to capture you for Himself. That's Jesus as Savior. But friends, the true Christian does not only believe in Jesus as Savior, but believes in Jesus as Lord, King, Sovereign One, who has the right to determine even how you think. That's what this is saying. We want to take every thought captive to obedience, to Christ. So the way you think about all things, the way you think about the money that you have, the way you think about your identity in this world, the way you think about issues related to sexuality, the way you think about politics, it all needs to be brought under the lordship of Jesus. That's, that's the way Christians live. We don't just call Jesus our Savior, we call Him our Lord. And what makes Jesus Lord is the fact that he was resurrected from the dead on the first Easter morning. And that's what we're going to celebrate, of course, next Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. That's where his right to rule ultimately is based. And so here's what I'm going to do as we get ready to bring this to a close. I'm going to make an argument here for the truthfulness of the Christian faith based on the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So let's we're going to put on, put, get our minds back in, in, in roll here, and, and here's the argument that I'm going to make. Okay, it goes like this. If, if a person, by his own prediction, is raised from the dead, then that person would possess all authority in the matters to which he speaks. If a person predicts that he's going to be raised from the dead and actually is raised from the dead, that person would have all authority in the matters to which he or she speaks. Now, i say the person predicts that he's going to be raised from the dead because there are cases where somebody dies for a while clinically dead, and they're kind of resuscitated. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who, who says, here's what's going to happen. All these things are going to happen, and I'm going to die, and then at this time I'm going to be raised from the dead. I mean, if somebody says that and then it happens you've got to be like, wow, who, who is this? And, and, and not only that, if I could just add another element, if also that person is claiming to be God in the flesh and all these things come true and he's raised from the dead, that, that person has all authority in all matters to which he speaks. That's the first premise. Second premise is this. Jesus Christ predicted exactly how he was going to die and said he would be risen from the dead and claimed to be God And that happened. Okay? Those are the two premises. If someone predicts that he's going to be risen from the dead, he has all authority. Jesus Christ predicted that he was going to be risen from the dead, and he was. Therefore, Jesus Christ has all authority in all matters to which he speaks. That's a sound argument. That's a sound argument. And in fact, it's exactly what Jesus says. This is after his resurrection, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me because of his resurrection. And so, friends, what this means, if you follow that argument, and Jesus indeed has all authority, that when uh, when Jesus says God exists, that's got to be true. When Jesus says there's heaven and a hell, that's got to be true too. And when Jesus tells you that marriage is between a man and a woman, that's got to be true. And when Jesus says that He is going to lay down His life to pay the penalty for your sins, and if you will believe upon Him, you'll have eternal life, that also has to be true. Because He has all authority, as proven, demonstrated in His resurrection. That's my Easter apologetic. And so you can come to me afterward and tell me if, if you buy that argument or not. I think it's sound. Um, so, tell me about that. But all of that, all of that is going to depend, of course, there's an assumption there, I understand, on the reliability of the documents that tell us that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's the Gospels. And so, okay, we got to do, do some work there, perhaps. But if the Gospels are reliable, then we can believe on that. And so, for that reason, and because of the central importance of the Gospel, as we're bringing this sermon series on core values to a close, we will begin in May, May 15th, a study of the gospel of Mark. So that, that's where we're headed next uh, in our Sunday morning sermon series. We're going to hear from Pastor Brian, Andrew, and uh, uh, Brandon Buller actually coming back uh, on May 8th. So we'll be hearing from them for the next few Sundays. But let, let me just close. I just want to give you some reading materials as we're kind of talking about the, the use of the mind. Um, a <clears throat> couple good books on defending the scriptures, defending the reliability of the Gospels. Can We Trust the Gospels, got in Peter Williams, very good short, very easy to read, uh, historical reliability of the Gospels, uh, Craig Blomberg, a little, little harder to read, but, but not too tough. I recommend those both. And then just books on defending the faith, of course, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, you know, classic. If you haven't read that, you really need to. Uh, Reason for God, Tim Keller, also also a classic, uh, but others. Um, that have come out uh, more recently. Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. Uh, Dane Ortlund, I just finished reading it, outstanding, very good. Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. uh, Making Sense of God, different than Reason for God, Making Sense of God, another book that Tim Keller has written. Also, very good. Let me recommend those to you. So, friends, let's use our minds. Let's use our minds In full dependence upon the Holy Spirit, that we might be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Father, thank you for uh, speaking to us in Your Word. Thank you for Your apostle Paul and all that He wrote down for us under the inspiration of Your Spirit. And I do pray, Lord, that uh, that we would be ready, that we wouldn't be intimidated and fearful, that we would trust in the power of Your gospel and Your Spirit, uh, but that we would do all in our power with the gifts You've given us to contend for the faith as you called us to do. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.